On the virtual Bible study tonight, we're taking various listener questions. We always do this from time to time. We save up a number of questions that we don't think probably would be uh, enough subject matter for a whole program. So we take several of these questions and pack them together, and we call it our our listener questions smorgasbord. That's Although tonight you've got some that could be a whole program. Yeah, I got to looking at that later, and we may have trouble covering them all because some of them can get kind of involved, but we'll do our best. We'll just go fast. Yeah. And we'll want you to come along and hang on tight because the virtual Bible study is getting started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, February 28th, 2019. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, joins me tonight. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you. Glad to be that you're here. And Kyle's behind the controls tonight. Kyle, welcome. It's good to be here. And thank you for being here as well. We're looking forward to hearing from you at 877-381 four five six seven that line's open anytime if you're not listening to us live and still like to contact us you could use that or you could send us an email to questions at collegeview.com or sign into the chat room and chat with other listeners on the program tonight we always like listener participation either email chat room or call us uh we think it makes our program better and you don't need a profound comment or a statement you could just call in or chat in where you're listening tonight, and uh, tell us your how location. You found out about us. Yeah, Kyle. Well, before we get going, um, you have been working hard on getting our services streamed live, and so that's an option now. Yeah, which uh, we've been been streaming the past two Sundays. But if they wanted to, uh, we do have that option available now. Once we can, it's on our YouTube channel, College View Live Stream on YouTube. Just search for College View yeah. Live Stream, you'll find us. I think that's important. Now, you're not going to find it here on this YouTube channel. You're not going to find it on the the Virtual Bible Study channel. You're going to find it on a separate channel, and it's called College View. Remember, College View with the weird spelling. College View Live Stream. And you'll, and, and Kyle, you're doing the Bible study hours, a Sunday and Wednesday, and Mm -hmm. two sermons on Sunday. But also, obviously, like YouTube does, they're going to archive the past episodes, so you can go back and look at some of the old, and it's really the whole service. You get the congregational singing and everything else that we do when we come together. This would really be good for somebody who maybe is a little intimidated about a visiting, uh, maybe you're here in the Columbia, Tennessee area, but you're a little intimidated about visiting a religious service for the first time. Check it out there and see what we do. We're not, we're not. What are they doing in there? Yeah, we're not handling snakes and we're not, uh, yeah. You know, uh, calling people out, calling people out. Yeah. We're just so you can check us out on YouTube at College View Live Stream. Kyle, thanks for your work on that. You got Kyle, it's really looking been, good, man. He's Kyle, uh, Kyle's really been putting in extra yeah. hours working yeah. on that. Yeah, it's right. coming along. It's, I think it looks, yeah, I think it's a good work. So I think it's thank good. you for doing that, Kyle. And uh, so we want to hear from you tonight on our listener questions. Uh, are you going to run down the list? Yeah, uh, real, let's, let me go run. They're not too long, so let me run down them real quick. Here's what we're going to talk about in this order, if the Lord wills. Number one, should we use one loaf and one cup for the Lord's Supper? Number two, are we teaching work-based salvation? 
when we teach the steps and the plan of salvation. Number three, is it selfish on our part if we want to do what we do only because we want to go to heaven? Yep. Number four, what's the meaning of Luke fourteen thirty three? Quote, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then number five, does the Bible teach degrees of reward and punishment in eternity? Okay. Those are, especially the one about the one cup, the first one and the last one about the one cup and the reward, degrees of reward and punishment can become pretty involved, but we're, we're going to do a, a, a cursory study of that. I don't think we've ever talked about the one cup question on the virtual Bible study. I did a little searching for that and I don't think we have. Okay. We did do a whole program on degrees of reward and punishment. If you check in our archives, th- that's there. All of our past programs are in the, uh, audio archives under Win- WMA, Windows Media Audio. Uh, we have all of those. We have most of them in MP3 format too, but we have them all in Windows Media Audio. Uh, and you can go there and check. There's a whole program on degrees of reward and punishment. We'll try to talk a little bit about that tonight. But let's dive in on that first one, Jacob. Should we use one loaf and one cup for the Lord's Supper? Usually that is uh, referred to as the one cup question. Uh, However, some who take the position that you can have just one cup also believe that you should only have one piece of bread Mm -hmm. uh, and all partake from the one cup and all take of the one piece of bread. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about that? Well... um Shall we go to uh, one of our listeners' questions who believes uh, this way? Okay, go. His response. Uh, Keith is down in Tullahoma, Tennessee, and he says, After doing a lot of study on this subject, I have come to the conclusion that the cups used in most congregations today are in addition to the Scriptures and should be refrained from to be in accordance with the Scriptures and the examples given by Jesus and the Apostles. One can even read about the addition of cups in the early 1900s by none other than G.C. Brewer himself. He made this statement in a book written by him called 40 Years on the Firing Line and a lot of the stances that he took during his years of preaching. Uh, As most of the church knows, he's also the preacher who condoned kitchens being brought into churches and for churches to send money to one church for that one church to do works in evangelism. In my studies, I've also found where even the gospel advocate shows when cups came into the church in the early 1900s. I've interviewed elderly people in the church that said when they were little, there were no churches using more than one cup in the communion. They remembered when the cups or communion tray were brought in the door, and instead of fighting for truth, they simply laid down and allowed it to happen, not wanting to create a disturbance in their congregations. David Lipscomb and many others fought the introduction of cups and communion trays being brought into services for many years, and a lot of them also finally gave up to keep peace in the church. How sad it is when good, honest men who fight for the truth simply lay down in order to keep peace and allow others to push over them and over the truth and bring in these innovations. No difference today and all the other innovations that are coming into the church, which are changing the very faith in which we practice. It is sad to see good men and brethren doing things for which they have no authority and thinking that they are in the right simply because they choose to use the church for their own personal needs instead of fighting for what is right. Where will the church go in the next 50 years? What happens when no one's left and we keep making silly excuses that there's no reason why we can't do certain things for which the scriptures do not allow or condone? Hopefully one day we will all wake up, but I doubt it. I also hear brethren consistently twisting the scriptures to amend their meaning so that they can have their way in ruling the church. And some uh, choose to twist the meaning of one scripture which 
clearly is not in accordance with a bunch of other scriptures in the New Testament that clearly point out what was done at the Last Supper, for example, Luke chapter 22, verse 17. All one needs to do is to go back in history and look at what was going on with the same enthusiasm that brethren used to keep kitchens out of the church. But as it was pointed out to me by a brother who has studied uh, this issue a lot more than I, he pointed out that the brethren began using communion trays because of the sanitation issue. The same folks that talk against the one cup because of sanitation have absolutely no problem going into a church building, touching door handles and faucet handles, and also breathing recycled air with all the germs and bacteria, mold and mildew that exist in that environment. Seems a little bit hypocritical to me when you can catch many diseases simply from breathing recycled air through an HVAC system. Many churches rarely clean surfaces that are touched by the sick or tell brethren to stay at home when they have the flu, strep, pneumonia, HIV, and the likes. Well, that's a long post from Keith. Uh, it's good to hear from Keith. We haven't yeah. heard from yeah, Keith in a long time. But i got to say, with all due respect, I completely disagree with everything that he said there. Uh, and just because... And, 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 and communion trays and, and multiple cups may be... Something that only came into churches in the they 1900s. Did. Uh, and, he's, and he has cited the history of that. So well, did electric lights. So did air conditioning. And, yeah. Uh, so did uh, um, amplified microphones. So yeah. did projectors and, and uh, uh, projection systems and all. This, this, so, so these things were not used. They certainly weren't used in the first century. But that doesn't make them wrong because they are they are newer things that we use to accommodate our worship. In Keith's, in, in Keith's uh, long message there, he didn't mention any scriptural argumentation, with the exception, I want to go to this, he mentioned Luke twenty two seventeen. We'll go to that in a minute. And, uh, th- there's no denying that multiple cups for the Lord's Supper came about in the early 1900s. They became common in usage in the in the uh, early 1900s but that doesn't mean it was wrong because like you said they, they didn't they electric lights came along later than that right and that doesn't make the electric lights wrong either you know right. when when uh, when paul met uh with the brethren in troas in acts chapter 20 to observe the lord's supper they were in an upper room there were lights in the upper chamber they weren't electric lights but they were like so. There's a change, but it's not a sinful change. It's not a wrong change. So, uh, with all due respect, Keith and Keith, thanks for writing to us. But I have to disagree with with your conclusion. Uh, now, Luke, now Keith would he, he mentioned it in passing. He would look at Luke chapter 22. Okay, let me defense. let me go to that. In Luke chapter 22, uh, he says. Uh, uh, he, verse 17, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took the bread and gave thanks and break it and gave them, and gave them saying, this is my body, body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the cup also, uh, likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new Testament, my blood, which is shed for you. All right. Now. I think it's interesting that Keys referenced Luke 22 because I think Luke 22 is the passage that shows us they used multiple containers on the occasion when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Actually, Jewish history tells us that at a feast meal such as that, every participant would have had their own cup. 
And verse 17 there, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. He wasn't saying, take a hammer and break this cup into pieces and each of you take a chunk of it. He was he had them take the contents and divide it into their own several separate drinking vessels. Then he, he, he blessed the bread. Then the cup and they, and they, and he instituted the Lord's Supper in that observance. I think Luke 22 verse 17 confirms that even on the very first occasion of the observance of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus instituted it, they had multiple drinking containers. All right. 877-381-4567 if you'd like to discuss that with us. Now, he referenced there, um, okay, he referenced verse 17. Um, but um, he says that uh, you may be um, twisting the scriptures here. How so? Uh, I don't know. That's what he says. You're twisting the meaning of one scripture, which is clearly not in accordance with a bunch of other scriptures in the New Testament. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. It, to, to explain the question of one cup, uh, we have to understand the figure of speech called metonymy. It's a figure of speech, and the American College Dictionary says metonymy is the use of the name of one thing for that of another to which it has some logical relation. A scepter for a king's sovereignty, or the bottle for strong drink. Uh, so you might not be familiar with the word metonymy, but you do it all the time. For instance, when we have a, a get-together among Christians, uh, the word will get out. You're, bring a covered dish uh, to the to the potluck supper on Saturday. Well, we don't want you just to bring a covered dish. We want you to bring something to eat. But we say bring a covered dish, and it and it and and that is a figure of speech for what you will have in your covered dish. Okay. Or we might talk about politics, and uh, on the newscast, very commonly, you'll hear them say, today the White House announced mm -hmm. that President Trump will go, well, wait a minute, the White House announced that? I don't think that White House can speak. It's a, It's metonymy. It's a reference to... The, the the presidential administration, which is centered at the White House. And so uh, we understand that kind of figure speech. It's called metonymy. The Bible uses that kind of speech. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, God loved the world. Did he love the planet? No, he loved the people who were in the world. We understand that's a figure of speech. He loved those in this world. Or how about Hebrews 11, verse 7? By faith, being uh, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Well, wait a minute. Noah's house got destroyed in the gone. flood. Yeah, yeah. But the house is used to reference his family that was saved in the ark by the flood. That's, that's, that is metonymy. And that's what we have when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. Let me walk you through real quickly. We need to go quickly. But in Matthew 26, 26, Matthew's account, beginning Matthew 26, verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. Well, wait, I can't drink a cup, but I can drink what's in it. But notice he said, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood 
of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's house. He first called it the cup. Then he said it was representative of his blood. He identified it as being the fruit of the vine. The cup was was a, was a figure of speech. It was metonymy referencing the contents of the cup. You don't drink a cup. You drink what's in a cup. He said he took the cup and gave thanks, saying to them, drink ye all of it. Uh, that's metonymy. Yeah. We see it in Matthew. Mark, Mark 14, Mark 14, verse 22. As they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to them and said, take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and and they all drank of it. You don't drink a cup. You drink what's in a cup. And he said to them, this is my blood. The cup wasn't his blood. The contents, the, the, the fruit of the vine. He says, this is the blood of the New Testament, which is said for many. Verily I say to you, I will, not, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Look at the text. The cup references his blood and the fruit of the vine, and they drank it. They didn't drink the cup. They drank what was in the cup. Okay. And then one more time. Well, we already looked at Luke chapter 22, so we don't have to go there again. Those are the three. Those are the three gospel accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then, of course, we have First Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. We won't read all. That's longer. I think most of our listeners are, are familiar with First Corinthians 11, beginning verse 23. But in that context, where Paul references the Lord's Supper, he says the Lord took the cup. And he said, as off as you drink it, and then he said, drink this cup. Same thing. You don't drink a cup. You drink what's in a cup. The word cup there is a figure of speech reference. It's metonymy referring to what's in the cup. And so uh, let me read some quotes from some some language experts Thayer for instance says by metonymy the container for the contained the contents of the cup what is to be drunk uh, Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says it refers not to the cup but to its contents the cup is used metonymously for what it contains uh, Bollinger's figures of speech in the in the Bible says quote in these and other places cup is put for the contents of it Arndt and Gingrich, Greek-English lexicon, says the cup stands by metonymy for what it contains. Green's Greek-English lexicon, metonymy, the contents of the cup. And then Robinson's Greek-English lexicon, uh, a cup for the contents of the cup. Barry's Greek-English lexicon, the contents of the cup. All the all the Greek experts say we've got a figure of speech there, but even if you didn't know a single thing about Greek grammar, the language of those verses tells us that that's referring to what's in the cup, not the cup itself. Yep. They weren't supposed to break the cup up and then consume it. They were supposed to consume what was in the cup. Good uh, good observations there. We got a lot of li- uh, listener comments, and we're past over time for a break. Let's get them quick. Dwight in Iowa says, "I would like to remind us that Hebrews chapter ten twenty nine states that the blood is the covenant, not the cup. If we are to be literal in the use of the cup, then would we not have to be literal in eating a meal before partaking of the Lord's supper?" In Mark fourteen verse twenty two, uh, it states that while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a, a blessing, he broke it and said, "Take it. This is my body." 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 and 20, through 27, it re- references drinking the cup. We understand that it cannot physically, you, we cannot physically drink a cup, but we can't drink its contents. Also reminding us that if we eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy way, then we will be guilty of the body and the blood, the blood being the blood of the covenant stated in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Strong's uh, number word number 4221, Greek word for cup is Poterion, it speaks only of this word cup as being a drinking vessel, does not say it is a symbolic vessel of the new covenant at all. Separate cups are none other than they to doing what the Lord has told us to do. Did not the Lord tell his disciples to divide it among themselves in Luke twenty two seventeen? Stephen from Georgia writes in, There were ten tables of showbread in the temple. At the cedar or last meal, which was the last supper, would have been the occasion of the last supper, everyone had their own roasted lamb, bitter herbs, unleavened bread and wine. A church with 300 members in attendance. That's a reference to the Jerusalem church. The very first day it began, it had 3,000 members. It would have been an impossible task dividing one piece of bread 3,000 ways. He says, let's get serious, ask some important questions that have eternal consequences. And I think what he means there is this is, this is not a matter to be divisive about. He says in the chat room, some brethren are more concerned about the cup rather than what it signifies. I think that's true. And Jeff uh, in Livingston, Tennessee, says there's nothing in the Bible that states how many loaves or cups to use. The emphasis is to be on what they represent, the loaf being the body of Christ and the cup or fruit of vine. Grape juice being the blood of Christ. The problem comes when you start binding on others how many loaves and cups you use by saying that it's sinful to use more than one or that it's sinful to just use one. Uh, so thank you for that comment tonight, Jeff. Uh, some other ch- comments quickly in the chat room. Melanie says, is it, is it not simply at, done as an expedient? It is. That's a fair word to use. She says, do we not also pour each individual portion from one container? Do we know that the cup he mentions was, in fact, a small portion cup versus a pitcher with many servings that he intended all to take from? What is the Hebrew word there for the cup, I wonder? Well, I think, go back to Luke 22, and I think Luke 22 suggests that they did divide it into their own drinking vessels. Ricky says the question isn't really whether they used communion trays and little cups in the first century. The question is, are we restricted to using one cup and one piece of bread, or do we have divine permission for multiple cups and loaves of bread? How many cups and pieces of bread were used among the thousands meeting on Solomon's porch and taking the Lord's Supper? References Acts chapter 2 there. Thank you for that. Yeah. All right, and then Jeff uh, in, in, in the chat room says another argument is Jesus says this cup a couple times in the Lord's Supper passages. So if we were to have to use one cup as the one cupper say, we would have to use the very same cup uh, used when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Oh, I never, well, then what do they call that? The but Holy Grail. that's Graham. why everybody's looking yeah. for it so hard. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's get a break, and then when we get back, we're going to get on to our next question. All right, I hope, I hope that's a, that, again, that's a fast cursory dealing with a subject that unfortunately has caused lots of division uh, through the years. But I, I, I really think if we look at it carefully, seriously, from a, even from a simple grammatical point of view, it's clear that the Lord was not instructing to use a single drinking vessel. When we get back, workspace salvation, when you say that we have, there's a plan of salvation that God has intended for us, is that workspace salvation? Is that, what about that? Let's, let's, okay. let's look at that. Let's talk about that on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Warning, this is to make you aware of a disorder plaguing American and the metro area, BDD, Bible Deficit Disorder. Many people are not getting enough Bible in their daily lives. Are you? 
answer the following questions to see if you might be suffering from BDD. Do you answer spiritual questions by saying, I think, instead of the Bible says? Do you depend on religious authors and pastors to tell you what to believe? When Benny Hinn says, this is your day for a miracle, do you believe him? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you might be suffering from BDD, Bible Deficit Disorder. The College View Church of Christ is dedicated to fighting BDD by teaching the Bible. We focus on Christ by following his word. Don't succumb to BDD, Bible Deficit Disorder. Fight it by joining us for Bible study on Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. As long as there is breath in your body, it is not too late to fight Bible Deficit Disorder. We'll see you this Sunday at the College View Church of Christ. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Too many people develop the self-defeating habit of making excuses rather than accepting responsibility. It's important to know where you are, but it's even more important to know which direction you're headed. Discipline yourself so that others won't have to. The undisciplined man is a headache to himself and a heartache to others and is unprepared to face the stern realities of life. Facts do not cease to be facts simply because they are ignored. Criticism from a friend is better than flattery from an enemy. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. So we look at various listener questions, and we're behind schedule, but we're getting on to question number two now. We'll go real quick here. Uh, are we teaching a work-based salvation when we teach the steps and apply salvation? The answer to that is no. Let's go to the next question. <laughs> well, it, it's a, that is a... That is a, a straw man argument, really. It is. If you think, I mean, it, you build really up this, uh, oh, works-based salvation is bad, and if you're going to obey the Bible, then that's works-based salvation, so it's, it, you've got to throw it all out. Throw yeah. the baby out with the bathwater. I, I think that's just absolutely wrong. I'm, I'm missing some of my questions, Jake, if you're going to have to cover those questions. Okay. Uh, I, I like the way Stephen put it in his email. Let me get this up and read it. He says, work-based salvation. No, we are merely breaking God's plan of salvation down so people who are struggling with it can take it step by step. Most people today are nearly totally ignorant of God's word. We're trying to find ways to simplify the truth so it can be better understood. I think that's true. Uh, we had someone who objected to using the phrase plan of salvation. No, we don't have to use that expression. That's not a biblical expression. We understand that. But there, there are, there are things that one must do. And there actually is some progression, necessary progression of things that a person must do in order to be saved. The question, of course, is the question asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Yep. That's the most important question uh, of all time. And so we look to the Bible for an answer to that and we find the different components and we piece them together to understand what it takes. It takes hearing God's truth. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. It requires after having been taught or having heard the truth, you have to believe it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, Hebrews 11, verse 6. So you hear, you believe. You must repent of your sins. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You must confess 
your faith in Jesus. Romans 10, verse 10, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So there's a natural progression there. You hear, and based on what you heard, you believe. Then you act upon it by repenting of your sins and verbally confessing your faith in Jesus Christ. And then you are baptized for the remission of sins. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You cited scripture for each one of those things you said. Now, you, you didn't make it up, and so call it what you want to call it. That's what God says you've got to do. Yeah. So and it's not the type of work-based salvation that's condemned in Hebrews chapter. I mean, Ephesians chapter two, obviously. It's not it, in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. Paul said, "It's not of works, lest any man should boast." Well, there's nothing to boast about by meeting those terms of salvation. Those are just those are just conditions we meet to receive God's free gift of salvation. That that's no different than me saying, "Jacob, if you'll come to my house tomorrow, I'll give you a hundred dollars." Well, you wouldn't earn it if you came to my house. You wouldn't earn $100, but you have to come to my house. You have to meet that condition in order to receive the gift. That's all we're saying about these things that we do. We're not earning salvation. I don't know anyone. I've never known anyone in the Lord's church who taught that we earn our salvation based upon works that we do. Nobody believes that. And I'm I'm weary of people charging us with teaching a a works-based and earned or merited salvation, we deny it emphatically. And so people are saying in the religious world today, all you've got to do is believe. All you've got to do is believe. And it sounds really good. They can go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and stand on that and trample every other scripture that tells us we've got to be obedient. It sounds good. A lot of people want to buy it, but the scriptures don't teach it. How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? Verse 8, talking about the day of judgment in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and do not believe in Jesus. No, it doesn't say that. Who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that works-based salvation? You've got to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is Paul teaching a works-based salvation? Shame on Paul for teaching that. No, he says you've got to obey or else you're going to be punished. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 says, speaking of Jesus and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. We've got to obey what God has told us to do or else he will punish us. He's done that throughout time, and it is no different now. If we do not obey, we cannot expect to be saved. Uh, in the chat room, Stephen says the temple architecture and the furniture were, were God's plan, and he expected it to be followed. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, uh, the Hebrew writer reminds that Moses was told, See thou that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. God expected Moses to do it just as he said to do it. That was his plan for the temple and or the tabernacle and the things that would be in it. And and that and that shows that God is a God of patterns and God is a God of plans and and His plan for us is spelled out in the New Testament. But it doesn't mean we're earning anything. Ricky in the chat room references Genesis chapter six verse eight. Noah found grace in the eyes of God, yet he was required, told to build the ark. Worked on that for nearly a hundred years. Peter says that he was saved by water. Now did Noah have a work? Based salvation? Would he have been saved if he had failed uh, in obedience and refused to build the ark? Ridiculous. He was saved by grace. 
And Ricky adds, I keep hearing of the mythical believers who believe in a works-based salvation. I've yet to meet one. We are saved by grace, but not without obedience. Yeah. Right. The, the idea, God, the gift of God is uh, uh, in, in Romans chapter 6, verse uh, 23. Romans 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So, Eternal life through Jesus Christ is a gift from God, but lots of times in our human relationships, we give gifts, but they are conditional gifts, and God has given us the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, but it's based on conditions. We must do his will. It's not work-based, though. I, I, we just got to stress nobody teaches that, and as, as Stephen mentioned in his email, we try to make it plain. Uh, just, just as I a moment ago recited the steps in the plan of salvation, we actually encourage our, our folks to memorize those simple steps in the plan of salvation so they can share that information with other people. But we're not telling them, you teach them now, you work real hard, you work up a sweat so that you can earn your salvation. Nobody believes that. All right. Uh, let's quickly go on to question number uh, Real quick, Jeff had an email. Oh, he did. He says, do we teach work-based salvation? Yes, and that we are to obey and work out our own salvation. That's, that's interesting. Philippians 2.12 says, work out your own salvation. But no, it is not the type of works done in order to earn anything. I think you're right, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, for your email tonight. Let's go All on right. to question number three. All right. Should we grab another break real I think quick? We haven't, had to, we haven't been working long enough to deserve another break. Okay. All right. So Kyle, Kyle agrees. Here, here's a question then. Number three on our questions that were submitted to us. Is it selfish on our part if we do what we do only because we want to go to heaven? I want to read the fuller question. That, that, that the, These questions, I had to sort of summarize them because they came in in a much longer format. Um, this question was, the, he, uh, the, this guy heard a preacher who identified that it is selfish if all we want to do is go to heaven. The preacher said that I, uh, that I do want to go to heaven, which, excuse me, I told the preacher, he says, that I do want to go to heaven, which is the only reason that gets me to continue. We are, after all, to look forward to our inheritance. Is it wrong to consider we are selfish if we only want to go to heaven? I believe his point was that it is selfish if we only do the things we do because we want heaven rather than do it to lovingly serve the Lord. I told him that it is only selfish if you are the only one who wants to go to heaven and therefore it's only selfish if you are the only one who wants to go to heaven and therefore refuse to teach someone the gospel. Uh, what do you think about that? I think that's kind of an interesting uh, point of difference between the preacher and this guy who sent in the question. I think I understand both both sides of that dialogue that apparently took place. Uh, I do think that we should want to go to heaven. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to go to heaven. The Lord certainly holds out to us what we would refer to as reward motivation. That's reward motivation. I want to go to heaven. The Lord also holds out to us punishment motivation. I don't want to go to hell. I'm afraid of, of hell. So that motivates me too. I think that, I think our, our questioner who said he's motivated because he wants to go to heaven, I, I'm pretty sure if you ask him, he, he's also motivated because he doesn't want to go to hell. So that's the second motivation. There's, there's multiple motivations. I think, and especially I think as we grow and mature in the faith, 
a strong motivation should become for us. We want to do it because we love. We want to do the right things because we love the Lord. John fourteen fifty. Yeah. If you love me, keep my commandments. Doesn't say if you don't want to go to heaven or to go to hell. You want to go to heaven, keep my commandments. We do it out of love. So that has yeah. to be in the equation as yeah. well. Yeah. So I don't think this is a a compartmentalized kind of consideration. I think I think the Lord who is ultimately wise and knows us better than we know ourselves understands the things that he can use to move us in the right direction and reward motivation is one of those things punishment threat is one of those things love for him we love him because he first loved us john says that becomes a mo- and i think that becomes a stronger and stronger motivation as we grow and mature in the faith dq in the chat room says how is it selfish to put god first and follow his commandment jesus outlined our priorities in matthew 10 37 through 39 thank you for that dq and Jeff, in uh, his an email tonight, says, if I'm doing it so that I, myself, and no one else can go to heaven, then yes, it would be selfish. We must work not to only go to heaven ourselves, but be an example to others so that they can go as well. Take as many as we can with us, so to speak. Thank you, Jeff, for your email. Tonight. Stephen says, if we are actually doing what we are supposed to do to make it to heaven, I can't see what difference it would make. If I did less than what's necessary with a good motive and fell short, would that be better? It is my salvation at question. I guess that might qualify it as being selfish. Stephen said, well, if it's selfish because I'm I'm concerned for my own salvation, then maybe if you want to call that selfish, then call it selfish. I, I agree with them. I, you know, and I think it's kind of interesting. You know, different motivations move different people. Maybe the fear motivation moves some people more than the reward motivation. Maybe. So, okay, let that move you. Uh, so, but I think the Lord knows human beings so perfectly that he provided a full spectrum of, of motivations that should cause us to do his will. Melanie says, it, is it, self, or it is selfish to not follow the second commandment, Matthew 22, 39. So uh, he says, uh, she says, I'm sorry, she says that uh, it would be selfish if you were not being obedient to God. Yeah, but I, uh, isn't Matthew to see? Matthew, That's, uh, love, you should love your day, raise yourself, the second commandment. Yeah. Uh, and, and the first commandment, of course, is uh, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. So, yeah, we, I, I think love's got to be there. And I seriously doubt if the if I know this guy who wrote this in, and I seriously doubt that he lacks love for the Lord. Uh, I, I, maybe he was oversimplifying his position, and the preacher there was oversimplifying his. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get a break, get this week's bullet point, and then when we get back, we've got two questions to discuss. Uh, one of those being uh, the meaning of Luke fourteen thirty three. Uh, so, it, do we have to renounce all that we have? Yeah. Maybe take a vow of poverty. Yeah. What about what about or, that? Okay. And then the last question for tonight uh, is: uh, Does the Bible teach degrees of reward and punishment in eternity? Two good questions to go when we get back, and we're going to the top of the hour. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. The question has been asked: Why do men sin? There are really only two general answers to that question. First, men sin because God made them that way. That is to say, men have to sin. Or second, men sin because they make the choice to do so. They have the option to obey God or not, and they choose not to obey him. So consider the first option. Men sin because God made them that way, and the sin that results in their lives is unavoidable and inevitable. 
This conclusion is in direct contradiction to the plain statements of Scripture. For instance, James 1 verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Furthermore, we have the case of Jesus himself, who, as a man, lived a sinless life. He was, quote, in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4 verse 15. And we are commanded to, quote, follow in the steps of him who, quote, did no sin. 1 Peter 2 verses 21 and 22. That command is senseless if, in fact, we cannot follow him because God created us in such a way as to make it impossible. We must conclude, therefore, that men sin, but not because we are made that way. We are left with the only other option. Men sin because when faced with the choice to do good or do evil, they choose to do evil. This conclusion matches perfectly with many passages of Scripture. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. Joshua 24, verse 15, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. It is obvious that we have a choice. The reality is that we fail to make the right choice. Romans 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Contributing factors to these bad choices would surely include the fact that we live in a sinful world, completely surrounded by and brought up in an environment of sin. Furthermore, we are typically short-sighted and opt for immediate gratification instead of eternal reward. But it's still our choice, and we are not forced to sin by virtue of the way that God created us. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, my name is Hunter. I'm 11 years old, and I love listening to the virtual Bible study. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. And we're back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Maybe find out more about us by watching one of our services now up on our streaming uh, feed there on YouTube. And uh, check us out there. And if you've got any questions about what we believe or practice, send us an email, questions at collegeview.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Don't Looking forget. Don't forget that YouTube channel for the for our worship services is College View Live Show. I need to get, get a link to that on, on our website. Page. Yeah, That's yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, we're ready for prime time now. We need to be up there. Yeah. All right. Good deal. All right. The, the the next question number four on those that we sent out to our update list earlier today. Remember, get on that list. If you don't get our weekly updates, get on that list by sending us an email to questions at College View, uh, and. Uh, Questions of College View, that's the email, and just say add me to the list and we'll get you on our list. And on Thursdays, you'll get an update about our topic for discussion. We sent these questions out earlier today, and the fourth one was, what's the meaning of Luke 14:33? Quote, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. Uh, so does that teach that we have to, you use the expression, take a vow of poverty and and there are some religious groups who do that and and there are those who have historically done that uh to do away with all of their own personal possessions renounce in the sense of completely giving up don't own anything uh some people might point to the very earliest christians in acts chapter 2 uh, and it says of them, verse 44 of Acts 2, all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now that was in the very early days of the church in Jerusalem. 
we've been made to understand that there was a great need almost instantaneously when that church began because there were there were foreigners in the city of Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost observance. They heard the gospel truth and obeyed it. They stayed on in order to learn more about this gospel of Christ and and they needed to be provided for. There was an instant need for for material things that could provide for their physical necessities uh and and the the disciples were so generous that they they sold their private possessions that's mentioned again in chapter 4 uh verse 34 neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold but interestingly, we know that they weren't required to do that. It was a voluntary thing yeah. because in the very next chapter, chapter 5, you may remember uh, Ananias and Sapphira uh, lied about what they had uh, contributed. Uh, and you know, they, they sold the property and they brought the money and, and they said, basically, this is the all we got. This is the, this is all the money we got for the sale of our property. But Peter said to Ananias, "Why is that? Why has Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price land notes? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God." You get the idea from what Peter said there. He didn't have to, he didn't have to give any of it. He certainly didn't have to give all of it. The, the problem was he lied about what he gave. And so even in those early days of the church, when there was an outpouring of generosity and people were living sort of, I think you could use the word living effectively communally there in Jerusalem, it was not a mandatory thing that they do that. Later, much later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul would say, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Notice what Paul said there did not include sell everything they have. That was never a requirement. So how do we explain this statement of Jesus in Luke fourteen thirty three? Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All right. Uh, well, he is uh, giving uh, them, uh, well, I think uh, DQ in the chat room uh, on our previous subject mentioned uh, Matthew chapter 10. Verse 37 through 39, in which we do need to renounce everything. In other words, be willing to give everything up in order to be pleasing to God. Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 37 through 39. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus isn't saying you have to, you have to, disavow even having a father or mother or brother or sister 
you have to throw all that away. He's just saying you got to love me more wow. than you love all of, all of your possessions. Here's the way uh, Stephen said it in his email. Jesus, in this context, is saying that the cost of discipleship requires that we value nothing of this life, including father, mother, wife, or children, as superior to serving Jesus. Jesus knows the power of things in this life and is warning us to consider the joy of life to come as so much superior. So, in other words, it's a statement of contrast. The, we, we value the things of the Lord so much so that other things pale in consideration. It is our our utmost uh, priority, our our ultimate goal. Yeah, we're not required to get rid of everything that we have. Now, some might reference the rich young ruler in passages like Matthew or Luke eighteen, where Jesus said in verse twenty two, "Go and sell all that I have and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me." If we're like that rich young ruler, in which our possessions are our God, and we're putting them in front of what we need to be doing for God, then we should sell all of them and and give them all. We need to get rid of them. We need to get rid of anything that might take our affection away from God. Jeff said in an email, he mentions, I think the passage you mentioned, Jacob, or Matthew 10, 37, basically put Christ before everything else. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, verse 33. Okay. So I think that's I think that's the idea of that. And, and and again, looking at actual historical events among early Christians, we know that sometimes they did dispose of their personal property in order to meet immediate needs, crucial needs. But we know at other times they did not, and they and they held private property. Paul did. And, yeah. In Luke in in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, he's speaking in hyperbole here, verse thirteen. Uh, Though I have the gift of prophecy in verse 2 and understand all mysteries, have knowledge, and though I could have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. He still had his body. He had not burned his body. He still had his physical goods. He had not given them all uh, to feed the poor. Uh, he's, but he's saying here, if you if you're not if you don't have love and you did those extreme things, it wouldn't be profitable. Uh, so Paul still had physical possessions. He's exactly right. Um, I was trying to see here. Uh, hmm, that's not the passage I'm thinking. Of. I was trying to think of one passage where it mentions the church that met in a brother's house. But okay, yep. and some of our listeners can can find that. Stephen uh, is uh, in the chat room. He said he references. He says that those passages you referenced in Acts four, uh, two and four, uh, those were extenuating circumstances. He says, and, and we ought to, and, and and doing the will of the Lord ought to be so important to us, and and loving our brethren ought to be so important to us that we'd be willing if we if we met the same circumstance that we'd be willing to do the same thing. It'd be a hard test for us because we are too married to our material possessions. Well, that's, that's I'm right. sure that's right, but. Uh, w- w- we're not in that same circumstance, and so uh, we're not under that same requirement. Okay. All, All right. right. Finally, our last question, question five, was does the Bible teach degrees of reward and punishment? Why don't we get Jeff? It gets right. He cuts to the chase. He says, no heaven or hell, eternal life or everlasting punishment. There's no in-between. Besides, what more could you want besides being in the presence of God for eternity? Likewise, what could be worse than being separated from God for eternity? So Jeff weighs in to start us off by saying no. You get eternal life or everlasting punishment. 
and uh, there are no degrees. Okay. Now, uh, I, I would I, I agree with Jeff on that actually, but. Uh, I know that there are folks who do disagree about that, and, and, and I know brethren that I respect who take a different opinion of that. Uh, I, I think that we, this does not need to be an issue over which we would divide uh, about it. I think we could believe actually opposite positions on that question and, and, and not need to break fellowship with one another. God's a God of absolute goodness. Psalm 25, verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he will teach sinners in the way. Uh, God is good. Whatever he does is going to be right. Whether we understand or not, what God does will be right. Um, Genesis eighteen twenty five says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Okay. Now, we also know in a passage that we referenced earlier, Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who are lost will deserve their punishment. Those who have responded to God's grace will enjoy everlasting bliss. Uh, and, and so if you want to boil it down to the sort of the least common denominator, you do not want to, to die unprepared for judgment because the punishment Whatever it is, to whatever extent it is, is going to be awful. You right. do want to be prepared for judgment by obeying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ because the reward, the blessing, the bliss is going to be indescribable. Yeah. We could stop right there. I mean, I mean, we don't really have to know any more than that. Hell will be awful. Heaven will be wonderful. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Uh, but having said that, I think it's an interesting question, and, and and people have discussed this, and and it's been a topic of some debate, I suppose, forever. I mean, I, I can't I can't imagine that anyone ever said I got the definitive answer on this, and here's the magic bullet that will solve all this dispute that's gone on for centuries. I don't think you I don't think you're gonna do that. Let's talk first about degrees of punishment. I think there are some passages that would potentially lead you to believe that maybe there will be uh, degrees of punishment. Uh, for instance, let me just read. I've got a whole list of them here, but I want to pick out just one. In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus said, Verily I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the land of judgment than for that city. Now, that city that he was talking about was that city who would not receive his disciples. Remember in the verse before, he said, Who shall not receive you nor hear your words when you depart out of that house or city? Shake off the dust off your feet. And then he says it's going to be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, someone, some people would use that verse to suggest sort of, degrees of punishment those people who rejected the gospel being preached by the disciples of jesus are going to be in a worse shape and be punished more sorely than the sinners in sodom and gomorrah i actually don't think that that's the case i think it's talking about the standard of judgment to which they'll be held more will be expected of those people who had a chance to hear the preaching of jesus the preaching about jesus from his own very disciples they had a greater opportunity 
Therefore, they're going to be judged more strictly than others who didn't have all the same opportunities they had. So I think the scriptures, a lot of the passages that are used to suggest degrees of punishment are actually teaching stricter stricter judgment, harsher judgment to those who had greater opportunities and did not avail themselves of that. Okay. Uh, Stephen references later in, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 uh, through 42, uh, about receiving Christ and receive a righteous man's reward. Uh, you won't lose your reward if you have a cup of cold water in the name of disciples. So um, he, 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 he indicates maybe he, uh, an, an idea there of a degree of, of, of reward, different degrees of reward. Uh, well, let's, let's stay on the punishment part first. I'm sorry, yes, yes. Let's stay on the punishment part first because uh, uh, let me take you one more place that maybe might teach degrees of punishment. Uh, Luke chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 41. Mm-hmm. In 1241, Jesus said over against the treasury. Let's see, am I reading right? Yeah. 1241, Jesus said over. No, that's not right. I'm You're not, not in 12. I'm not in. Where am I? Uh, oh, I'm in Mark. I, yeah. I want to be in Luke. That's what, that's what my problem was. That doesn't read right. I'm, okay. Luke chapter 12, verse 41. Uh, Peter said to him, Lord, speakest thou this parable to us or to all? Um, and, and, and then he, and, and he had just been teaching in parables. Uh, 47 and 48. Yeah, 47 and 48. He goes, as he's explaining the parables that he's been teaching. That servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required, and to whom men have committed much of them, of him they will ask the more. That makes the point. Now, that's probably the most familiar passage that's used to teaching degrees of punishment. Few stripes, many stripes. But Jesus actually explained that in the last phrase of verse 48 when he says, Unto whom much is given, much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much, they will ask the more. So I think Jesus, even in explaining that statement, is saying he's talking about not degrees of punishment, but degrees of judgment. Judgment is going to be harsher, more severe uh, on those who had opportunity and had ability uh, and are going to be judged accordingly if they didn't use it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think many of the passages that teach degree that are used to teach degrees of punishment probably are talking about degrees of judgment more so. Okay. Actually, a lot of passages just teach one punishment for sin. There's one lake of fire. You read earlier Luke or uh, Revelation 21 verse 8. All liars will be cast into the lake of fire. You know, some liars are a lot worse than other liars. Some liars tell big black lies. Other other liars tell little white lies. All liars yep. are going to be in the lake of fire. I think the problem is we we try to categorize sin, and all sin is horrible. And so all sin deserves eternal damnation. And so I think degrees of punishment is based upon the mis understanding of some sins are worse than others so i don't think the bible teaches degrees of punishment Uh, i don't i also don't think that it teaches degrees of reward uh uh some of the passages uh 
would be like Matthew 25 of when Jesus told the parable of the talents. But notice in the parable of the talents, there was the five-talent man, the two-talent man, the one-talent man. The five-talent man and the two-talent man were awarded the same kind of commendation. One had done a lot more than the other, but, but they'd both done what they could, and they both received the same kind of, con- uh, of commendation uh, from the Lord. Uh, so Stephen references Matthew 20 uh, in the chat room, Matthew sixteen twenty seven. the son of man shall come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Uh, so sort of like uh, you, if you did real good, you get better reward than others. Maybe it's what he's saying. Yeah, I I understand that, and and I could see how that could be understood that way. I uh, I actually think uh, that. So here's a guy who, who's a very talented person, and he does a lot. Yeah. Here's another guy who's not very talented. But he does everything that he can. Does a just God regard, does he reward this guy who's very gifted and talented? Does he give him a a higher mansion in heaven than this lowly brother who didn't have a lot of opportunities, didn't have much ability, but he did everything that he could? Uh, Actually, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, my answer to that is no, I don't think God works that way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not and not according to that that he hath not. Yeah. So I, I I don't I I personally don't go with degrees of punishment or degrees of reward, but as I said earlier, I, I wouldn't have a hard falling out with anybody who believed otherwise. Unless unless it led you to think, you know what, I'm going to go to hell, but I'm going to be pretty good i'm, I'm, I'm gonna just, have a cooler it, spot it's gonna be like arizona or something you know but it's not gonna be like terribly hot yeah so that's the danger i think of teaching degrees of punishment some people might say well i might be punished but it won't be bad it also is a danger of teaching degrees of ward i just want to get in the game yeah, yeah. if, if i got a little shack on the outskirts of town it'll be yeah, good enough yeah. as long as i'm in heaven yeah. i'm not going to work too hard i just want to work hard enough just to get in the gate so they, they, it could be counterproductive yeah. either yeah. one of those positions could be counterproductive right all right Good discussion tonight. Good questions. Kyle, what about you from your side of this, this room tonight? It was good. I think uh, serving God is getting into heaven. I think we need to get to serve, do our best in this life because we can't, we don't have a measuring stick. We can have a little scale like, okay, I'm, we don't have that scale. We don't know. Yeah. So, you, so you I do guess, all you yeah. can, right? Yeah. You just do what you, do you can. The best you can. We don't have yeah. that little, yeah, little yeah. meter that says, "Well, I'm kind of, I'm a little on the warm side. I need to do, a, yeah. I need to yeah. do a little bit better." So yeah, exactly. And by the way, as I mentioned earlier, there's a whole program on degrees of punishment reward in our archives. Look at our archives, and you can, if you want to hear more about that, there's a whole program on that. Good discussion tonight, Dad. Thanks for uh, for your time tonight. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listeners who send in those questions too. Good questions, and we'd like some more. If you have any question you'd like discussed on the program. Send it in to questions at collegeview.com. Thank you for being here tonight. I hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.
Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.